Podcastle, episode 306, for April 9th, 2014. Flash Fiction Special, Tales of Strange Inspirations. Rated R, maybe beautiful, but it ain't always pretty. Hello and welcome to Podcastle. I'm your host and co-editor, Dave Thompson. Today we're going to do something a little bit different and run a trio of our flash fiction stories together. Typically in the past, we only do this when we have a flash fiction contest and we lump the winners together. However, we've noticed a couple of instances where we have a group of short stories that are complimentary. And I've personally enjoyed the Flash on the Borderland episode Pseudopod's been running, as well as the way Drabblecast has done their trifectas pretty much since their inception. Now... Occasionally, you might just hear a single Flash Fiction episode pop up, and surprise, I don't think we'll always do our Flash Fiction stories this way, but occasionally, when a grouping kind of fits together so well, like these stories did, well, it just seems kind of inspired. Today's stories are an odd bunch, and I mean that in the sincerest, most complimentary way that I can. What I'd like to suggest to you is that you think of this episode as a group of portraits, sculptures other kinds of art, and of me as your curator through this museum of the bizarre. Our first story is Beauty and Disappearance by Cat Howard. Cat Howard lives and writes in the Twin Cities. Her short fiction has been nominated for a World Fantasy Award and performed on NPR as part of Selected Shorts. Her work has been included in magazines such as Nightmare, Lightspeed, and Subterranean, you can find her on Twitter as @catwithsword, and she blogs at strangeink.blogspot.com. She has a novella, The End of the Sentence, co-written with Maria Davina Headley, coming out from Subterranean in August. Our reader is none other than our good friend, the now Nebula Award-nominated author of The Amazing Ancillary Justice, Anne Leckie. So remember, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And enjoy the story. Beauty and Disappearance by Cat Howard The statues were disappearing from the museums. Not as a result of theft, petty or otherwise, nor from careless misplacement. This was quite clear as soon as the disappearances began, because the statues were not disappearing in their entirety. Rather, only certain pieces were lost. The open hand of an elegant marble woman, outstretched as if in welcome, gone. The laurel wreath and lyre of an ancient poet vanished. Art experts and detectives were called in. Inquiries made. Vandalism quickly ruled out. The statues were otherwise undamaged. There were simply pieces, small fragments of beauty missing. You will have realized by now that if I have taken pen in hand to relate these events, the strangeness does not end there. Larger parts of the statues began disappearing. A Madonna and child one morning was simply the figure of a young mother, serenely smiling down upon her empty lap. Theseus, on a Tuesday, was rendered bereft of his snake-haired prize. That was when the whispers started, just a few at first, but soon the speculation echoed through the halls of the affected museums. Perhaps, although of course it was ridiculous to even consider it, some of the statues were now more beautiful because of their missing pieces. Perhaps that missing space, the space between what was expected and what was seen, was where the beauty was created. You 
will be wondering how people could know what they should have seen in those missing pieces and spaces between. We wondered that too, until we looked ourselves. If people looked at the statue sideways, slantwise, out of the unfocused corner of an eye, the pieces were not missing at all. Their absence somehow rendered the statues more real, as if they were now truer and more perfect versions of what had previously existed. Or maybe not truer versions. Maybe what was being seen was different for everyone who looked at the missing pieces, who saw finished shapes in empty air. Perhaps the beauty was unique to each interaction between audience and art. You will have already guessed what happened next. It became fashionable among a certain romantic and passionate set for individuals to make statuesque, for that was what they called it, parts of themselves. The upper joint or two of the smallest finger or a bit of the earlobe were popular. A young woman given to excess in everything removed the entirety of her left hand. Seven couples, in lieu of exchanging wedding bands, sliced off their ring fingers during the ceremony, adding a blood-soaked intensity to their joining. The missing fingers were highlighted in all of the wedding portraiture. Still, the purposefulness of these actions, for all their passion and artistry, rendered the result somewhat flat, less perfect rather than more. You will have already understood that even as these damaged romantics were attempting to make living art of themselves, that the disappearances of the statues continued and that the cult to their lost beauty grew. All other exhibits at the affected museums were ignored. The need to gaze upon the disappearing statues became a compulsion. People began to speculate as to which piece of which statue would disappear next, and they held vigils in front of their chosen favorites, hoping to see the precise moment when art was rendered absent and thus perfect. You will have guessed by now that while the disappearances continued, the watched statues were not affected. You will have also guessed that it was no longer the statues that were disappearing. People were disappearing. Not whole people, but much like the statue, certain of their component parts vanished. The invisible ones, they were called. They were not, of course, truly invisible, for that would have suggested that the vanished pieces were present and simply unseen. No, the disappearances were total. At first, fashion changed to highlight the disappearances. Sleeves became shorter to better frame a forearm dangling below the absence of an elbow. Gloved hands hovered at people's sides, seemingly of their own accord, like unstrung marionettes. But soon people realized that while absence may be beautiful in statuary, it was rather terrifying in living flesh. Fashion changed once more. Garments became long and voluminous, designed to hide missing pieces of blood and bone. Suspecting that they were the source of the vanishing syndrome, people began to avoid the affected museums, and the disappeared statues were moved to shadows and corners. Yet it is true that beauty is born in the shadowed and dusty places as well as in the light, and even in darkened corners hidden from all but memory, the statues continued to disappear. You will by now have many questions, but it is best, I think, if I let you seek the answers for yourself. You will already know where to look for them, know that they are found in the space between the lie that is beauty and the truth of its disappearance. And welcome back. Okay, our next portrait is Aduet and Reyes, originally published in the Journal of Zine and Worden. 
More of his work has been featured in Shimmer, Weird Tales, Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, and hey, Podcastle. He wrote the miniature Directions. Our reader for this story is John Mishna, an actor, director, and grad student living in Pittsburgh. Now let's make some beautiful music together. Enjoy the story. A Duet in Reyes by Caleb Wilson One Saturday evening around the turn of the century, the composer Arnold Reyes was walking home along Vituba when a tentacle of wind licked his hat straight off his head and over the rail into the Megoro River. He watched the hat sink as the current whisked it south, and then decided that since his route home was through the market square, he would purchase a new hat on the way. At the market, he browsed several hatters' kiosks until he found a hat which was identical to the lost one, but for a dark red velvet band, which he hoped would set him apart from the crowd. He bought it, placed it directly on his head, and continued home. He did not notice that, as he walked, several dozen powdery pink moths emerged from beneath the band and crawled into his ears. While Reyes slept that night, the moths chewed his brain, severing certain synaptic connections. When he awoke, his brain had been split into two separate minds. At first, the composers noticed nothing amiss. They breakfasted, during which their housekeeper was either very attentive or strangely shy, and walked to Zarbigny Park, where they intended to work on a suite of rustic dances. There were many distractions at the park, such as squirrels, dogs, starlings, pretty young ladies, and a clown. Eventually, one of the composers, we'll call him Reyes I, noticed a peculiar behavior in the pedestrians along the brick path that passed before his bench. During their approach, all was unremarkable, but as they drew level with him, each walker swiveled smoothly so as to remain facing him. For a few steps as they passed his bench, they faced him while moving sideways like crabs, and then, completing a half-turn, faced him as he or she walked away backwards. He watched first with surprise, then interest, and then concern, as each pedestrian seemed to move with a dancer's grace so as to always present to him their front side. He cast his gaze across the lawns all the way to the hedge at the other side of the park, and every person he saw, whether standing, sitting, or moving, faced him. Meanwhile, the other composer, Reyes too, noticed an equally baffling, if not slightly more ominous behavior amongst the very same park-goers. Reyes too observed that all the pedestrians moving along the path toward his bench walked backwards, so that he only saw the backs of heads, elbows, buttocks, calves, and ankles, that when they were just across from him they neatly swiveled, and that once passed each turned further and continued away normally. All across the park he saw in defiance of probability that every person in the park faced away from him. Reyes too was more disturbed by what he saw than Reyes I, and was the first to leap to their feet. Reyes I stood too, and slipped the notebook into their breast pocket. Reyes too approached a man who stood nearby and facing away. "'Excuse me, sir, do you have the time?' asked Reyes too. The man checked his watch without turning around, and said in a friendly tone, quarter to eleven. Thanks, said Reyes too, and tried to quickly circle around the man to see his front, but the man rotated in place just as quickly, always keeping the back of his head and slightly dandruffed shoulders towards Reyes too. And might I bother you for a match? asked Reyes too. Certainly, said the man, and lit a match, holding it out behind his back. 
Simultaneously, Reyes won, who found the same man distressingly attentive in the way that he turned toward him, no matter how he dodged, dropped his cigarette unlit and dashed away over the grass, trying to escape the man's regard. They approached a woman holding a small child, and Reyes won asked her, rather brusquely, Yes? What is it? Why are you staring? I beg your pardon, said the woman. Reyes won circled around them, but the woman turned like a ballerina, and the small child eyed him continuously throughout their rotations. Leave me alone! The composers both began to run aimlessly across the park, each holding a single hand up to a side of their face until they plunged accidentally into a crowd gathered before a puppet show. These puppets are broken! shouted Reyes too. Stop staring at me! shouted Reyes one, who found himself oppressed by all the eyes and faces, while Reyes too was shunned for no reason. Together they began to spin. The folds of their brain began to itch, to sting, to burn. They became dizzy, and though the visual senses of Reyes I and Reyes II refused to conflate, suddenly each became aware of the other. The adults were either all staring at him aghast or all giving him the cold shoulder, but a small girl who was bored with the puppets began to spin in imitation of the composers. Each composer blinked his eye, amazed to discover that, while the girl whirled, both saw a flickering composition which wove together her front and back. This patchwork parody of their old vision nauseated them, but it was better than the madness that had come when the moths nibbled the world in two. They pulled the notebook from their pocket as they staggered away from the crowd, each struggling for control of the pen, desperate to catch the notes of the new twin melodies which echoed in their skull. They must set the populace spinning, or else they would be driven insane. This is how Reyes came to compose their most famous song, that incomparable, indescribable melody which, once heard, can never be forgotten, that tune which sets the legs dancing, sets every listener leaping, spinning, the rustic dance which changed our entire society, which made whirligigs of us all, never stopping, never stopping, spinning, twirling in the streets, in the banks, in the beds, in the schools, in the cemeteries, and all to satisfy the moth-eaten vision of a divided mind. And welcome back. Our final story is Ten Cigars by C.S.E. Cooney, originally published in Strange Horizons. Cooney's no stranger to us here at PodCastle. She's had several stories here, including Braiding the Ghosts and Household Spirits. She's also been a narrator for us, most recently... Martha Wells' story, Thorns. CSC Cooney respectfully suggests go to YouTube to watch the animated excerpt, The Epic of Shursta Sharkbait, from her novella Martyr's Gem, published online at Giganotosaurus. This story is read by, well, by a lot of people. Smokes all around, especially the unharmful kind that don't cause cancer. Yeah, this is a fantasy podcast because I don't think those tobacco products exist. Anyway, do enjoy the story. Ten Cigars by C.S.E. Cooney 1. First for food, salt of birth, sugars of the dead. The birth of Alberto Gomez was a festive affair. Six sisters had preceded him. They ran around the house, feral in bright skirts and all their beads. Rosa, not yet five, disdained any offers of a shirt. 
while everyone was busy kissing baby Berto, Maya, the eldest, snuck her sisters outside. Look, I stole it from Theo's pocket. Long, cylindrical, gray. It smelled heavenly. If heaven was a forest fire. Careful, Angela did the matches. They solemnly passed the cigar around, sucking the non-lit end and exhaling deeply. Only Rosa got it right. She coughed up ten butterflies right away. Two. They sought acknowledgement, too. Accolades. Not so different from us. Not much is known of Danaeus incendiarius, family Nymphalidae, order Lepidoptera, writes popular entomologist Aurora Bismarck. Mentions crop up through history, usually signifying the birth of a great statesman or the ratification of a peace treaty. They are dark grey, with a wingspan of six to eight inches, and black markings that look like roses in bloom. Once on vacation in Edinburgh, I was privileged to see a swarm. Director Amy Riedel had just won Audience Choice Award at the film festival. Her friends were laughing, passing around champagne and cigars. Suddenly, the room was full of rare incendiarius butterflies. 3. They spread appetite. They knew what it was to covet. Isaac Giuseppe grinned at the girl in red. You're holding that stick like you mean business. She rolled her eyes. It's called a cue. Yeah, I think you're cute too. She laughed. Isaac was notorious. He'd pretend to be one of those hopeless, boastful boys, all talk and no skill. He'd challenge her to a game. If she lost, she'd have to kiss him. If she won, he'd give her a magical cigar purchased in Rome last summer. He'd seem to lose right up until he won. Not tonight, thought the girl in red. Cigars mine. Up for a game? Four. Some grew fastidious, choosing their hosts for boldness, stubbornness, cunning. I'll pay you ten dollars to smoke that whole cigar. Her roommate was chronically broke and probably wouldn't pony up, but Shweta Primlani took the dare. She knew what it was. The casing had markings like a blooming rose. She made it last two weeks. The dare didn't specify she had to smoke it all in one sitting. She'd smoke until she felt ecstatically sick, then stop. She'd clutch the sick inside until she could find somewhere quiet, out back by the dorm dumpsters usually. Then she'd open her mouth, let the sick crawl off her tongue and take flight. Five. They were not without a sense of humor or revenge. How can we play poker with all these damned butterflies all over the damn place? Vince stared, stony-eyed, until Sean antied up. Vince's poker face was formidable. 
He practiced in the shower, turning the water from freezing to scalding. His wife complained. She never knew anymore if he liked his dinner, if he really wanted to stream the latest vampire porn from BBC America, or was just humoring her, if he found her sexy. A gray butterfly landed on Vince's nose. His face screwed up. The cigar he'd been chewing dropped. He sneezed. Five butterflies blew out of his mouth. Six. Human children were curiosities to be kept in their place. Moonchild and Wesley were the children of nerdy Gen Xers who took their love of 1980s fantasy too far, at least in Moonchild and Wesley's opinion. Moonchild couldn't even go by Anne or Jane, plain enough names, until Mom went all googly-eyed about Lucy Maud and the Brontes. She figured she was safe with Joe. She called Wesley Wes. They liked playing outside better than TV. They found the papery gray cigars strung up by silvery webbing and furled like bats in the back of the shed. Moonchild said, let's burn them. Wesley got his magnifying glass. Detonation. Wings. Everywhere. Wings. 7. Observing we were hardwired for faith, they courted our clergy. Her disciples called her the serene high holiness, modern-day mystic, new century saint, but she still thought of herself as Kendall Andrews' blogger. She used to blog about all sorts of things, boys, groceries, work drama, etc., but her spiritual filter had gotten the most attention. Over the years, she'd accumulated a following, trolls too, fucking scary stuff. Last year, they'd posted her address in a public forum, the things people sent in the mail. But when she opened the package and found the cigar, she knew it was a gift. It whispered under her fingertips, warm with promise. Eight. They stole the most beautiful, perhaps a kind of mercy. Nathan Michaels was lonely, like a Paul Simon song. He went to the Emperor's Club for the cure. Blues, booze, and boobs. Cigar smoke purpled the air. Nathan's favorite dancer was Lady Dax. He never could look her straight in the face. By G&T number three, he was able to perceive her outline and gyration. Tonight, the more she removed, the more she seemed covered. She ended her act in a gown of gray velvet black roses. Her gown took wing, lifted her gently, wafted her through the club, out the open double doors, away. She was smiling. Nathan wept. Nine. But with the elders they were gentle. Age they understood. People left things on his porch ever since Millie died. His grief was sharp but he looked forward to opening his front door every morning. He could guess who left what by the contents. Mrs. Stafford's plum butter, Mrs. Doherty's tuna casseroles, Mrs. Bayer's woolen scarves. The pack of cigars stumped him. None of those nice church ladies smoked. All their husbands had died of cancer. The butterflies stumped him, too, but they brought that old rose tree of Millie's back from the dead. Strange blooms, deep velvety black, he made a wreath for Millie's grave. 
she would have liked it. 10. And so they came to earth and found it good. The storm was mighty. Perfect, some newscasters called it. Monstrous, said others. An amateur meteorologist made a joke on his Storm Apocalypse podcast about Terry Pratchett's Papilio Tempeste, the quantum weather butterfly, which makes hurricanes on Discworld. A water spout was spotted in East Texas, he said, deadpan, his face pimpled, earnest, droll. It's pouring frogs in South Carolina. And, oh yes, in Westerly, Rhode Island, about a thousand cigars rained down from the sky. Smokin'. By May, Westerly's own Wilcox Park had several new rose bushes, each pollinated assiduously by gray butterflies, each branch covered in small black roses. And welcome back. This one reminded me a little bit of Ray Bradbury's The Wonderful Ice Cream Suit. Except everyone's sharing fantastical smokes instead of a white suit. Go figure. And for those of you keeping score at home, everyone consisted of... Anna Schwind, Graham Dunlop, Amal Elmotar, Tina Connolly, Norm Sherman, Anne Leckie, again, M.K. Hobson, myself, Wilson Fowley and Peter Wood. Thank you so much to everyone for helping us pull that off. Anyway, Cooney told us about this one. I woke up from a dream one morning about a black and white indie film called Ten Cigars. It was a series of vignettes that focused on those moments in life when cigars form a part of a tradition. Births and deaths, weddings and high achievements. I wrote Ten Cigars that day. Don't ask me where the butterflies came from. Maybe they were always there. Beautiful, huh? And after reading this one, well, Anna and I just thought it sounds so good with a full cast. I hope you thought so, too. We'll have another full cast story for you in a couple of months. A feature-length one this time. They're fun to do, but they're a pain in the butt for Peter, our sound producer. Anyway, those were our stories. We thank you for taking this little tour with us through our Museum of the Bazaar. Podcastle is free for you to download, and we hope you do so and tell all your friends about it. But please feel free to leave some money in our collection plate on the way out. It goes to paying our artists and keeping our doors open for many, many more trips to come. Let us know what you thought of this episode over at forum.escapeartist.net. Let us know what you thought of the format. And speaking of our forum, let's go ahead and hit feedback. This time, amusingly, we're going to talk about one of the most artistic pieces we've ever run at Podcastle. None other than Robert E. Howard's The Tower of the Elephant. Featuring Conan the Barbarian, read by Graham Dunlop. People seem to think it was a pretty good one as far as Conan stories go. Prokion had a great post that's way too long to mention here. Devoted135 said, Oh Conan, you ridiculously muscled and perfectly adapted to since death approaching guy, you. I must say that you guys have picked three amazingly different Conan stories to feature here. Well thanks. Which makes it pretty hard for me to form an opinion of him and his stories. I think I like this one second best. I could have done without the woman kidnapping selling, and I was seriously rolling my eyes at all the monologuing that the alien did. 
Seriously, I was complaining out loud to my computer wishing he would shut up and die already. But the dungeon crawl part was pretty cool, and I liked how Conan had a buddy, at least for a short time. So a mixed bag, but I'm not mad about it. And Graham himself chimed in to say, People, it starts in the mall, M-A-U-L, not the mall, M-A-L-L. I couldn't distinguish that with my voice. Which led to Fire Turtle's comment, <clears throat> Under the thousand eyes, empty gaze of the sunglasses hut, the young Sumerian... <sighs> Crap. I can't read all this purple prose. A little help? Please? Under the thousand eyes, empty gaze of the shining sunglasses hut, the young Sumerian broke his long fast with a fistful of Cinnabon and a tankard of caramel macchiato with an extra shot. Here in the furthest reaches of the mall, where the empty-eyed emo devotees of the dark gods gathered, he could watch and observe the gleaming edifice that was his goal. Well lit, gleaming silver under the fluorescent bulbs of the forgotten god, it glowed. The blue-shirted priests scurried to and fro within, hastening from supplicant to supplicant. Over all it presided the fell symbol of an eastern god, known to few in years past, but now his tentacle grasp reached across the lands. The gleaming apple of Jobs was slowly consuming the world. The barbarian reached to his hip and loosened his blackberry. Thanks, Graham. Thanks, Emily. On behalf of all of us here at Podcastle, LaShawn Wanick, Graham Dunlop, Peter Wood, Anna Schwind, and myself, thank you so much for sharing another story with us. We'll be back in one week with a special story for Easter, with a werewolf, a motorcycle, and a Mormon, courtesy of Scott M. Roberts. See you all then. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote is from Pablo Picasso, who said, Every child is an artist. The problem is how to remain an artist once he grows up. Thank you for listening. We'll look for you next time.